Good morning, everyone. It's kind of hard to believe that May's almost over. I thought this was going to be a long month, but it kind of went quick. Um, so next week, we'll actually get to welcome back Pastor Zane and Zane, uh, Jasa and all the kids after their month-long sabbatical. And so I'm looking forward to that. I hope you guys are, too. Uh, I'm ready to pass the baton on and be like, all right, you're back. So looking forward to it. But we'll give him a little bit of rest. So... Um, so you may have noticed this past month, our theme was actually missions and evangelism. I don't know if you guys picked up on that. And that wasn't by accident. Actually, Zane and I have been praying about that uh, for quite a while now, that uh, God would bring the right men to come and uh, fill in while he was gone, but also that it would be a, a push for missions and evangelism and, and to kind of get us thinking along those lines. And, and to be honest with you, uh, I don't know if you guys were, but I was extremely blown away by what God did with, through those three men that came and spoke with us. Uh, this month, we've seen the example of Abraham. We learned what it me- means to leave, go, and to bless. We've come face to face with the staggering realities of lostness around us, not just around the world, but even right here in Montana. We've been reminded of the miracle of the message, the method, and of multiplication, And we celebrated the power of the gospel to change lives and heard testimony of others living in the joy of the Lord, even in the face of persecution. And we even felt the weight of every 1.8 seconds, someone dying without knowing Christ. And then we came together and learned tools to help us in sharing the gospel with those around us. And so today I want to turn our attention back to the beginning of the New Testament church and specifically to the beginning of Paul's ministry. So we're going to jump around a bit today in the book of Acts as we walk through the progression of the early church and dig into some of that narrative account. And I want to first note that the book of Acts is actually the second book that Luke wrote to Theophilus, the first being the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke was a fellow missionary companion of Paul. He was a physician and a Gentile. And even though Luke was personally not an eyewitness of Jesus he was able to go into some very personal details of the life of Christ. It's clear in his account of Jesus' birth in Luke that he had spent time with someone that knew the intimate details very well. Most likely, he had interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we see throughout the rest of the book that he has this ability to interview folks and have these very detailed eyewitness accounts so that uh, as he recorded it, we were able to see the life of Jesus in the beginning of the church. And so when Zane was here, we had just finished going through the book of 1 Timothy. We learned a lot about the relationship of Paul and Timothy. But what about the folks in the early church that worked um, in the background? Who were the people that influenced Paul's life and helped him to become the extraordinary person that we all look up to today? But before we go there, we need to quickly review the context of Acts. So we're going to paraphrase some and look at the scriptures and set the stage for our text today. I guess I should probably drink this. Is that why it's nice? Like my smack in my lips. All right. So the book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Jesus has already died on the cross. He's been buried, and three days later, he rose to life. He's appeared to his people for over a period of forty days, and he spent uh, and he was present with five hundred people at one time after his resurrection, speaking of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus has told his disciples to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift that God had promised, which is the Holy Spirit. And upon receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter and the apostles preached to the masses at Pentecost, 
and around 3,000 people that heard the gospel repented and believed, and the church begins to grow rapidly. The apostles were soon overrun with trying to meet the physical needs of the church, and they set aside men full of the Spirit and wisdom to help in that. Stephen is the name of one of those men, and he is going to be arrested on false charges of blasphemy, and then he's stoned to death. This is the first time that we see the mention of a man named Saul who was there approving of Stephen's execution. So what do we know about Saul? There's other verses in the Bible that tells tells us that he's from Tarsus, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Roman citizen and a devout Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. This was an influential religious sect within Judaism. They were known for their emphasis on personal piety. And in the Gospels, the Pharisees are often presented as hypocritical and proud opponents of Jesus. And all of these factors were God-ordained and would play in a role of what God had planned next for Saul. So back to our overview of Acts. After the stoning of Stephen, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So in Acts 9, we find the account of Saul's conversion where he is met by the Lord on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to seek out any followers of the way with the intentions to persecute them. So followers of the way are what, you know, are followers of Christ. Coming from John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except, comes to the Father except through me. They were followers of Jesus, followers of the way. So Saul is going there to persecute them, bound them, and take them back to Jerusalem. But on his way there, he's blinded by a bright light, and the Lord asks Saul, why is he persecuting him? He's instructed to go to Damascus and that he will be told what to do, and during that time he remains blind for three days. God then sends a vision to Ananias, he's a disciple living in the town of Damascus, to go and meet with Saul and explain to him what had happened. Through much hesitation, much hesitation, Ananias obeys and Saul believes in Jesus and is baptized. And then he immediately begins proclaiming Jesus is the Christ in the synagogues in Damascus, and all who heard were amazed at his testimony. He goes on to share his testimony in proclaiming Christ as the Messiah among the people in Damascus and in the area around Arabia for three years before he makes his journey to Jerusalem. So that's where we're going to pick up today, Acts chapter chapter 9, starting in verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, we know this from Paul's letter to the Galatians that it was three years later, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So here we see Saul, still very early in his ministry, so early, in fact, that the disciples of Jesus were still afraid of him. They were still uncertain if what they had heard of him was true. Yet Saul is being persecuted by the very group of people that he once belonged to. So, how does he get to meet the disciples? In this pivotal moment, there is a man named Barnabas. In verse 27, it continues, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to to them 
On the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So what do we know about Barnabas? And we see in Acts chapter 4, 36 through 37, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We know he is a man that is in tune with the Spirit, and he was already nicknamed an encourager by the disciples, and he was known to be generous. And in Acts 11, he is referred to as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And through his ministry, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So, basically, he was an obedient disciple of Christ. The passage here in Acts 9 doesn't tell us what encounters he had had with Saul. Many scholars believe that he must have seen Paul in Damascus. But either way, he was fully convinced that Saul had experienced a radical change because of Jesus. And he went to bat for Saul. While the disciples were looking at Saul's past, Barnabas acknowledged Saul's present. He trusted Saul's testimony coupled with the spiritual fruit that was being produced through that and believed in what he saw God doing in this man. So would Saul have eventually proven himself to the disciples? Possibly. But I believe God used Barnabas in a mighty way in Saul's ministry. Saul was about to embark on a phase of ministry where he would face extreme persecution. God would have sustained him regardless of who rallied around him, but God also gave us a beautiful gift of relationship. And he provided that relationship for Saul through Barnabas that would be for their mutual benefit many times. Barnabas saw what God was doing in Saul's life and called that out in front of others that doubted him. When Barnabas vouched for Saul, we see the disciples welcome him in and immediately Saul went to work. In Acts 9, 28 through 30, so he, being Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. It's kind of a common theme for Saul. And then the brothers learned this. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So just a quick rabbit trail in case you're wondering who the Hellenists are. There are two groups of Jewish people. There were the Jews who remained in Judea near Jerusalem, who used the Hebrew language and were appropriately called the Hebrews. The other group of Jews consisted of those who scattered among the Gentiles, who spoke the Greek language and who used the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. These were called Hellenist for the the word meaning Greek or Greek speaking. So to Hellenize is to adopt the Greek culture and ideas. So there's two groups. We've got the Hebrews and the Hellenist. And back to our story about Barnabas, Saul comes to Jerusalem, the disciples were afraid of him, and Barnabas brings him before the disciples and shares that he is truly working for the Lord. And the next time that we see Barnabas and Saul together is found in Acts eleven nineteen through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and of Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So there's a lot of exciting things happening in that passage. And first of all, uh, just a little Bible trivia for you. The followers of Christ were first called Christians here in Antioch. And this is from a commentary that I read. It was common for Greeks to give satirical nicknames to particular groups. For example, those who publicly and enthusiastically praised the Emperor Nero Augustus, they received the name Augustinians, meaning of the party of Augustus. And to the Greeks, it was all fun a fun word game and verbally dismissive gesture. And then a new group cropped up in Antioch, and since they were characterized by their behavior and speech centered on Christ, the Greeks called them Christians, or those of the party of Christ. Both the Bible and history suggest that the term Christian was probably meant as a mocking insult when it was first coined. And Peter actually tells his readers not to be ashamed if they're called by that term. So while the title of Christians may have slightly different meaning now, are we living up to that name that so many faithful believers before us lived and died for? Are we exemplifying Christ in our lives? And are we living like the party of Christ? But back to Saul and Barnabas, did you catch the role that Barnabas played in that text? Barnabas was the one who the disciples chose to visit the believers in Antioch. Barnabas was obedient to follow the Lord. He proclaimed the gospel and he witnessed what God was doing. But he also recognized something in Saul and called him to join in with what the Lord was going to be doing in Antioch. Then as we keep moving on in Acts, Barnabas and Saul are sent back to Jerusalem to distribute gifts of sustenance to the elders of the church in Judea. And upon their return to Antioch, they bring back a man by the name of John Mark, who we will talk about later. But now we're going to keep going and pick up in Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this is the beginning of what we often refer to as Paul's first missionary journey. And how fitting is it that Saul's companion on this journey is none other than Barnabas. And for another fun Bible trivia fact, this is also where we see the New New Testament begin to refer to Saul by the name of Paul. In verse 8 and 9 it says, But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So this was very common practice to have two names. Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Roman name. It was not that his name was changed after conversion or that Jesus changed his name, but the name change seems to coincide with his travels into the Roman world. Just kind of an interesting fact I learned not too long ago. I always thought it was a name change. So, Paul goes on to complete three missionary journeys, starting in 40 A.D. until his life sometime around 64 A.D. 
And if you've never taken a deep dive into Acts, I highly recommend it because there's a ton that we can learn from Paul's experiences, such as uh, his ministry where he received beatings, he was shipwrecked, he endured stonings and multiple arrests for simply preaching the gospel. Uh, He really teaches us what it means to endure even in the midst of hardship. And we know for certain that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote at least 13 letters that are included in the New Testament. God mightily used Paul to see many come to faith in Christ. Some would say that he's the greatest missionary that ever lived. And it's hard to argue with that statement when you look at the impact his preaching of the gospel has had. Without a doubt, Paul's life is impressive to say the least. He was able to be part of the spread of the gospel that generations later had a direct effect on all of our lives. For most of us, we're Gentiles, right? We're not, most of us aren't from Jewish background. And the only reason that we know who God is is in part because Paul's obedience to God despite the hardships that he faced. But we have to remember that Paul was not alone. First and foremost, he was always accompanied by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But he was also spurred on by his fellow brothers in the faith, like Barnabas and the body of Christ. In Hebrews 10, we are called to persevere in faith by doing what? If we look at Hebrews 10, 23 through 35, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have a mission together as the body. We are responsible for guarding each other, protecting each other, encouraging one another, and equipping one another. But so many times it's easy to turn against each other. Why? Because the enemy would love nothing more than to divide us, to make us think that this is all about us, to bring our focus inward to our own feelings and our experiences with others. But we have a great deal to learn from this man named Barnabas. And before you think that Paul and Barnabas' relationship was completely blissful, uh, they were still human, as we all are. And in their humanity, life gets messy. So you remember I talked about John Mark. Uh, Paul and Barnabas brought, they brought him to Antioch with them. He also joined them on their first missionary call. But during that missionary journey, for whatever reason, John Mark decides to return home. In Acts 13, 13, it says this, Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's literally all we know from chapter 13. But if we look a little more, we gain uh, some more details when Paul and Barnabas are planning their second missionary journey. In Acts 15, 36 through 40, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit Uh, the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So once again, we see Barnabas, the son of encouragement, calling out what he sees God doing in someone's life 
or at least the potential of what God was, wants to do. And while this sharp disagreement it seems extremely unfortunate, God still uses it for good. This disagreement actually multiplies the gospel work because Paul takes Silas in a different direction and Barnabas goes with John Mark. So even in the midst of the strife, God uses it to multiply the work. But Barnabas had a heart that was focused on restoration. He wasn't willing to let a mistake define John Mark. And the Lord is gracious to allow us to see how this situation continues to play out. If we look in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says this to Timothy, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is useful to me in ministry. That's a stark contrast of his feelings from, Mark, from Acts 15. But we're grateful to see that that restoration had been made uh, in that relationship too. And so I'm going to take another rabbit trail here because I find it encouraging. We actually first meet John Mark uh, back in Acts 12. After Peter had been arrested and an angel led him out of prison, uh, the first place that he went was the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. I remember that story where he literally walks out of prison Yeah, and the first place he goes is John Mark's mother's house. So this is where the connection of that relationship begins. Though we don't know the details of Mark's desertion, his circumstances, no doubt, would have been understood by Peter. Peter was also once a deserter. He had deserted Christ when he was arrested and was undergoing the night trial by the high priest. He had denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed. It was later after Christ had risen that he met with Peter on the banks of the Sea of Tiberias in John 21. Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? And each time Peter replied, Yes, Lord. And Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep. And at this moment, Jesus was restoring Peter to the work that Christ had called him to do, even though he had deserted and denied him during his time of trial. And so this is somewhat speculative But you can see how Peter would have had a heart to restore John Mark to service, just as Barnabas had. Mark went on to be the scribe for Peter's account of the life and miracles of Christ and what we know as the Gospel of Mark. When you're reading the Gospel of Mark, you're actually reading it from the experience of Peter. Peter was the eyewitness, and Mark was to be a part of recording such an amazing account of Jesus' life. Thankfully, thankfully, we know that Barnabas chose to stand up for John Mark. In his care and concern for the body of Christ, he walked with the Holy Spirit in bridging the gap of conflict to restoration because we all make mistakes. Barnabas was a faithful friend, a committed encourager, and a forgiving brother. He was about the kingdom of God. But Barnabas was just doing what Jesus did. He looked for people that were faithful, available, and teachable, and equip them and encourage them to live the new life that Christ had given them, one free from sin and lived to glorify God. So as we wrap up this month, I want to give us a few more questions to ponder. In the midst of our pursuit of fulfilling the Great Commission, are we, like Barnabas, following the example of Christ? Are we we actively looking for what God is doing in a fellow believer's life? Are we calling out what we see God doing in and through others? Are we encouraging one another, building one another up and cheering each on, each other on in the ministry? Are you willing to walk alongside our brothers and sisters and serve together for the glory of God, even if you don't receive any glory? 
And do we want to see each other succeed? When we think about being called into ministry, we often think about pastors, right? But we really, the ministry happens outside of these walls. Pastor Zane, myself, all of our teachers and leaders here at LBC are are here to help teach and equip. But together, everyone in this church family are the ones that take the ministry to the community. Here in this place is where we learn from each other. We build each other up. 1 Peter 2, 5 tells us that we, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then again in verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Simply put, we need each other. We need each and every one of us in this room to complete this mission that God has given us. In Philippians 2, we find more encouragement about how we are to build each other up, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So how can we do that? That's a pretty high bar. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So how could Barnabas be such an encourager? How could he be so confident in what he saw God doing in others? Well, he understood what Christ had done for him. He lived his life in response to what Christ had done, and he walked with Christ. So my question is, what do all these men, Barnabas, Paul, Timothy, Peter, John, Mark, and any of their other contemporaries have in common? What is the thread that is woven throughout the book of Acts? It's the Holy Spirit. These men were everyday people. Men who, yes, had incredible giftings given by God, yet they were still ordinary men, just like you and me, but they walked with the Spirit. They each led broken lives before meeting Christ, and we live in a broken world, a world that became broken because mankind ran away from the perfect relationship that God created. We sought to go our own way and live by our own rules, and consequently, we separated ourselves eternally from a holy God. And ever since then, we all try to make things right by following paths that lead us right back into that same brokenness. But Jesus Christ made a way out. 
He made a way for that relationship to be restored so that he could once again, we could once again walk with him. He came down from heaven. He lived a sinless life and died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He suffered the consequences of us walking away so that we wouldn't have to. And then he rose again three days later, defeating sin and death and proving that he is God. All we need to do is repent of our sins, put our faith in him, and turn our lives towards him. And allow Jesus to truly be the King and Lord of our lives. Then he restores us to that perfect relationship that he originally had designed. When we put our faith in Christ as our Savior of our sins, the Bible tells us that we're actually a new creation. That is, that's the gospel. Like when we're in here talking about the gospel, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why we are excited to be here. That's what it's all about. And as a new creation, we have a new identity. And this identity is the same identity that Barnabas, Paul, Timothy, Peter, and all followers of Christ before us have had. Our identity as one who has been forgiven of our sins is to be the ambassador for the one who does the saving. To be a born-again follower of Christ is to be one who walks in the Spirit and shares what God has done. So my question is, are we walking in our identity, or are we running away? So before you even think about it, that, you, that I don't know who you are, or that I don't know what you've done or the problems that you have, well, we could all say the same thing. But here's the deal. Imagine you're running a race and I put a belt around you, and you got a couple of 45-pound weights, and I said, take off and run the race. How long do you think it would be before we start trying to figure out how to get rid of those weights, Right? Now, consequently, imagine if you're sitting on a couch and you still have that same belt with weights on, do you think you would recognize it as quickly that you have weights around your waist? So it's not until you actually get in the race that you realize the sin that so holds you back. And we actually see that in Hebrews 12. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because we know that there is an eternity at that finish line, right? So we're going to cast those sins off, and when you're in the race, it is much easier to do when you're not in the race. So when we live a life set on following Christ, those sins that trip us up will not have any room in our life. If you're thinking that you have to get your life in order before you can begin to tell anyone else about your faith, my advice would be start running. Ask God for opportunities and be available. Be looking for those open doors as you're going. If you want to learn more about the Bible, read the Bible and teach someone else about what you're learning. You will learn along with them. So when you are actively engaged with the mission of sharing your faith, you will come face-to-face with the sin in your life. And as you see it, throw it off. And when those sins or new ones pop back up, we know that we've taken our eyes off of Christ. But here's the thing. Don't try to do this alone. Surround yourself with those who are walking with the Spirit and seeking God's kingdom first. Uh, Brother Chris last week actually he asked us during our weekend evangelism training, he said, what's it going to take to see no place left that hasn't heard the gospel? What about no place left in Libby, Montana that has not heard the gospel? 
This would be an impossible task on our own, right? We need Christ at the helm. We must abide in Christ, but we also need each other. So let us follow the example of Barnabas and ultimately Jesus Christ as we exist to be a people of radical invitation. Let the way that Christ has radically transformed our lives spur us on. May we never forget the miracle of the message and that God chooses to use his people. When we are obedient, we get to join in with what God is doing, and that's the most truly fulfilling thing. He chooses to use us to invite others to faith in Christ, to grow to maturity, to serve God and others, and to go with the gospel.